0: Burning books. Burning Burning Hello, and welcome to episode three of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books very good books, books in which there is something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, I'm happy to say we're in the very good to great books range, yes, with the 1961 novel by the widely read but still totally underrated Kurt Vonnegut Jr. And that novel, whose title is taken from Goethe's Fast, is Mother Night. For an illegitimately long time, I avoided Kurt Vonnegut, although I did this for what I believed to be legitimate reasons. I thought of Vonnegut as a sci-fi writer. And before a gaggle of sci-fi freaks jumped down my throat, let me say no, I can't defend my opinion, it's indefensible, and I don't care. Vonnegut himself addresses this reception of his work in an essay he wrote called Science Fiction.
1: Years ago I was working in Schenectady for General Electric, completely surrounded by machines and ideas for machines, so I wrote a novel about people and machines, and machines frequently got the best of it, as machines will. And I learned from the reviewers that I was a science fiction writer. I didn't know that. I supposed that I was writing a novel about life, about things I could not avoid seeing and hearing in Schenectady. I have been a sore-headed occupant of a file drawer labeled science fiction ever since. And I would like out, particularly since so many serious critics regularly mistake the drawer for a urinal.
0: And for English listeners, that last word was... Urinal. It was because of a series of coincidences, in fact such a series that they ceased to be coincidences and started to look more like part of the divine plan, that I did eventually pick up my first Vonnegut novel. First there was a review of Cat's Cradle on a blog that I like to read. Then there was the recently redesigned soft covers of all of Vonnegut's work, which followed me around the local bookstore like the eyes of a painted portrait. And finally there was always the clincher, a good friend saying, apropos of nothing in particular, but fully in keeping with the divine plan, what, you haven't read anything by Kurt Vonnegut? Go home and pick one up right now. So I did. That's how I ended up reading Slaughterhouse-Five, one of, without question, the most beautiful, strange, powerful books I've read. Here's someone who knows that the origins and the core of the novel are humor and parody, and who uses these things to skewer our received ideas and false idols. Vonnegut is a highly moral writer, but his work is never pious. And that, for me, is what's at the heart of it all. And it's for this great heart of his, as much as for his seemingly laid-back way of delivering his ideas, that makes his books so inviting to read. It's for this reason that I love Vonnegut, What a dude. What a dude. From Slaughterhouse-Five, I moved to Mother Night, in part because the main character of Mother Night, Howard W. Campbell Jr., appears in the later novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, where he addresses the captured American troops in Dresden. Let's just take a listen.
1: The Americans in the Slaughterhouse had a very interesting visitor two days before Dresden was destroyed. He was Howard W. Campbell Jr., an American who had become a Nazi. Campbell was the one who had written the monograph about the shabby behavior of American prisoners of war. He wasn't doing more research about prisoners now. He had come to Slaughterhouse to recruit men for a German military unit called the Free American Corps. Campbell was the inventor and commander of the unit, which was supposed to fight only on the Russian front. Campbell offered the Americans food now, steaks and mashed potatoes and gravy and mince pie, if they would join the Free American Corps. Once the Russians are defeated, he went on, you will be repatriated through Switzerland. There was no response. You're going to have to fight the communists sooner or later, said Campbell. Why not get it over with now? Howard W. Campbell Jr. remained standing, like the guards. He talked to the guards in excellent German. He had written many popular German plays and poems in his time, and had married a famous German actress. She was dead now, had been killed while entertaining troops in the Crimea. So it goes.
0: Woo, yes, Kurt. So from that passage, you get a sense of the oddball that Howard W. Campbell Jr. is. In Slaughterhouse-Five, he's presented as an American collaborating with the Germans in the war, a propaganda artist whose job it is to demoralize troops and anyone else who is listening to his worldwide radio broadcasts. The broadcasts, coming from Berlin, are built on the idea that Americans really want to join the Germans and would do it if they only let themselves just like he, Campbell, has. The thing is, this Howard W. Campbell Jr. may not be what he appears to be in Slaughterhouse-Five. It's possible that he's not a turncoat American working for the German war effort, that he's actually an American spy who has infiltrated the highest levels of the German war machine. Sure, he's spreading anti-Semitic paranoia, but his aim was to make up stuff so implausible, so ridiculous, that no one would actually believe it. He writes in his defense...
1: I had hoped, as a broadcaster, to be merely ludicrous. But this is a hard world to be ludicrous in. With so many human beings so reluctant to laugh, so incapable of thought, so eager to believe and snarl and hate, so many people WANTED to believe me. Say what you will about the sweet miracle of unquestioning faith. I consider a capacity for it terrifying and absolutely vile.
0: So, yeah, it's not really his fault if people wanted to believe him. That was just a byproduct of him saying the things he did. At the same time, there's a built-in hitch to all this. We have to take Howard W. Campbell Jr.'s word on everything he says, literally. And that's because Mother Night, the explanation for how Howard W. Campbell got to be the notorious Howard W. Campbell that he is, is actually an apologia written in first person by Howard W. Campbell Jr. himself, an exculpation in memoir form detailing how he became one of America's greatest enemies only because he was actually one of America's most loyal patriots. His explanation? He was recruited as an American spy. So the question is, do we judge Campbell by the actions he took during the war, or the explanation he gives after it? The moral here, as Kurt Vonnegut puts it in his preface to the book, is...
1: We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be.
0: The story starts off with Campbell in an Israeli jail. He begins by describing the four guards who take shifts watching over him in his cell. Each guard has something to say through words or actions about the war. One, for instance, tells about how he infiltrated the SS and led them to a totally unnecessary internal purge. Another recalls how, at the end of the war, he helped hang a camp guard using a leather strap, and how, later the same day, he used another leather strap to fasten his suitcase.
1: Twice within an hour, I did the very same job, once to her and once to my suitcase. Both jobs felt about the same.
0: Each guard says something about Campbell's own experiences about the war, too. With these two, there's a story of a spy successfully infiltrating and sabotaging a unit, and of a man doing two completely different things that feel more or less the same to him. But I only saw this consonance in retrospect. That's one of the great things about Vonnegut. While it's predictable that he should use the beginning pages of his story to set up his major themes, and while this is exactly what he does, the reader doesn't feel like some kind of plot point bomb has been dropped from above. And that's because of Vonnegut's easygoing way with words. His books are among the most intricately sown of any, but you don't feel the work that goes into it. They have a deceptively light, L-I-T-E, quality to them. It's a credit to his way with words and may also have something to do with his Hick from Indianapolis persona. And that's true even when his writing is at its most florid. You don't see it. You think you're listening to Willie Nelson, and it's not till later that you realize it was actually Mozart. And you have to say, nice job, Kurt. Okay, now getting back to the story. After setting up his current coordinates in Israeli prison, Campbell goes back to the events at the end of the war, his repatriation to New York City, his 15 years of peaceful, anonymous living, and then lands on the moment when he was outed, when one day he receives a visit from Lionel Jones, dentist and preacher, and white supremacist, and is brought back into the fold of white supremacy, this time in the United States. Jones is accompanied by his driver, the Black Fuhrer of Harlem and bodyguard, August Kraptower, vice-bundesführer of the German-American Bund.
1: The greatest achievement of his life was the arrangement of a joint meeting of the Bund and the Ku Klux Klan in New Jersey in 1940. At that meeting, Kraptower declared that the Pope was a Jew and that the Jews held a $15 million mortgage on the Vatican. The change of Popes and 11 years in a prison laundry had not changed his mind.
0: Also among the Motley crew is the one person to whom Campbell professes true loyalty his wife, Helga Noth. Campbell had thought her dead, but as it turns out, she had merely been dragged away by the Russians and interned in a gulag. Problem is, if all these people have found Howard Campbell, then it would only be a matter of time until the wrong kinds of people did too. People like Bernard B. O'Hare, chairman of the division of the American Legion, and suspiciously similar sounding to the Bernard V. O'Hare, who appears in Slaughterhouse-Five, as well as close, but not as suspiciously close, to the Mary O'Hare, to whom Slaughterhouse-Five is dedicated. The Bernard O'Hare of Mother Night, Bernard B. O'Hare, is the soldier who escorted Howard Campbell to safety, security, and freedom after the war, not knowing who he was. Bernard's a little bit ticked about that, and in his disappointment with himself, writes to Howard. Dear
1: Howard, Dear Howard, I was very surprised and disappointed to hear you weren't dead yet. When I think of all the good people who died in World War II, and then think that you're still alive and living in the country you betrayed, it makes me want to throw up. You will be happy to know that our post resolved unanimously last night to demand that you either get hanged by the neck until dead or get deported back to Germany, which is the country you love so much. Now that I know where you are, I will be paying you a call real soon. It will be nice to talk over old times, When you go to sleep tonight, you smelly rat, I hope you dream of the concentration camp at Ordroof. I should have pushed you into a lime pit when I had the chance. Very, very truly yours, Bernard B. O'Hare, post-Americanism chairman.
0: So Campbell soon has to flee, and that's when the story becomes sort of like a firecracker, going in various directions simultaneously and entertainingly. There's more Jones, more craptower O'Hare, Black Furor, and Helga Noth. And there are cameos by Campbell's alleged spymaster, the so called Blue Fairy Godmother, and Adolf Eichmann, who's down the hall from Campbell in Israel, and whose capture, trial, and memoirs inspired, in a Vonnegutian way, Mother Night. But I don't want to go any further than that. What I will say is that if all of this sounds out of control, it should, but it never is. That is, at least for me, what makes Mother Night such a great ride. Of the many things I took from Mother Night, there's Vonnegut's description of the totalitarian mind.
1: A mind which might be likened unto a system of gears whose teeth have been filed off at random. Such a snaggle-toothed thought machine, driven by a standard or even substandard libido, whirls with the jerky, noisy, gaudy pointlessness of a cuckoo clock in hell.
0: His Description of Eichmann
1: As a friend of the court that will try Eichmann, I offer my opinion that Eichmann cannot distinguish between right and wrong, that not only right and wrong, but truth and falsehood, hope and despair, beauty and ugliness, kindness and cruelty, comedy and tragedy, are all processed by Eichmann's mind indiscriminately, like birdshot through a bugle.
0: I mean, take that, Hannah Arendt. And by take that, I mean carefully consider and evaluate. And there are other things. There's so many other things. What I think of first and last, though, is what Vonnegut writes, as offhandedly as always, in the preface.
1: If I'd been born in Germany, I suppose I would have been a Nazi, bopping Jews and gypsies and poles around leaving boots sticking out of snowbanks, warming myself with my secretly virtuous insides. So it goes.
0: I think I'm right in saying this isn't the first time Vonnegut considers the possibility he could have been doing the deeds of the other side. In one sense, at least, Mother Night is a look at this exact question. On which side is Howard W. Campbell Jr. anyways? And on which side are his writings? What moral or ethical purpose do they serve? And it's not just Campbell. So many characters in this novel move from one side of the line in the sand to the other. I've got to say, I don't agree with Vonnegut. I don't think he would just as easily have been a Nazi as not. And while I'm at it, I didn't agree with his portrayal of Dresden in Slaughterhouse Five as a kind of Bambi that got caught in a forest fire. But Vonnegut does something more important than to get me to agree or disagree with his ideas. He gets me asking questions about my own, questions that cannot be finally or definitively answered. And for doing this in such a brilliant, stylistically beautiful, and highly entertaining way, you've got to say once more, nice job, Kurt. And so it goes. Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can send me notes, Nasty or Nice, on Twitter at Burning Pod and via email. The address is Pod at gmail.com. My thanks to Hakon Ozgan for the music. There are- ways to thank someone So let's start with the easiest Teşekkürler And as always go James <laughs>
1: My name is Bert Coles, I'm a dramatist who works mostly for the radio and I was the head writer on the BBC's unique project to dramatize all of the Sherlock Holmes stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the first time it's ever been done in any medium. And you're listening to Radio Litopia.